All right, First Chronicles 11, where we'll start tonight. First Chronicles 11. And uh, we saw in First Chronicles 10 how quickly um, Chronicles deals with Saul. King Saul pretty much just has um, his death recorded, nothing about his life and we ended last time with verses 13 and 14 of first chronicles 10 which says so saul died for his breach of faith he broke faith with the lord and that he did not keep the command of the lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance he did not seek guidance from the lord therefore the lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to david the son of jesse so Four times in those two verses, you see the Lord, all caps, Jehovah, God's covenant name with Israel. And serious, anytime God kills someone in the Old Testament, we have to know why. Well, we want to know why. <laughs> Sometimes we're told why. This clearly is one of those examples uh, of why God put Saul to death and plays into and it leads into our story with David. So Saul is the first king of God's covenant people, Israel. And as a king, his job was to lead Israel toward God. Um, obviously fight their battles, which is why they wanted a king. But when it comes to his breach of faith, um, and a couple other times in the uh, genealogies, we saw that same language of why people didn't live out their whole life because of their breach of faith. But um, when it comes to the king, uh, God was not, and if you remember 1 Samuel, God stopped answering Saul after Saul started rebelling over and over and over again. And it wasn't one time. Well, you see David's breach of faith when he committed so much Bathsheba. But it wasn't a lifestyle. For It sounds like with King Saul and uh, chapter uh, 9 to 31 of First Samuel, is he rarely, if ever, trusted God. And he was constantly leading Israel away from God, even though he knew God's plan was not to include him. And he knew, as most of Israel knew, that David was part of God's plan of the next king. He fought against God's plan instead of trusting God's plan. And because of his breach of faith, he ended his life miserably. Um, and the Lord turns over the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. And so we'll see the Lord. And um, if you look at verse 9 with me of First Chronicles 11, we have uh, our theme for tonight is David became greater and greater. And we're going to wonder why. And the text says, for the Lord of hosts was with him. The Lord of hosts. Now, that that uh, title, the Lord of hosts, probably doesn't mean too much to us. But if you were a military man, like David was, Saul was, to have a host, which was an army, a large army. So when you and I see in the, the Lord of hosts, it is the host of heaven's army. And so he is the Lord of hosts. Who he got, David has all of heaven, obviously the Lord as well, with him. And that's why David becomes greater and greater. And we'll see how the progression of uh, 11 and 12, it's like David is a magnet 
And all of these people are attracted to David from all of Israel. And eventually we'll see how many people at the end of chapter 12 are in David's army. And it's going to be a host. It's going to be a huge army uh, by the end of, of chapter 12. So the beginning of chapter 11 and the end of chapter 12 are bookends of how David was anointed king by and recognized king by all of Israel. And we know this in the back of our mind now with, now with verse 9, that how did he become great? It's because the Lord was with him. How did Saul die? <laughs> the Lord wasn't with him. And he rejected God. He rebelled against God. And God took him out, gave the kingdom over. And so chapter 11 and 12 tells us how uh, David inherits, uh, gets the kingdom. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. Now then, all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And this, remember the song that the ladies sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, that he was a, a mighty military man. And, and everyone knew uh, the story of Goliath and how David was the, man, the young man who took off Goliath's head. So he says, uh, and all the... Uh, the people, the elders who are there at Hebron to make David king, they say this in verse 2. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. At the end of Saul's reign, notice how the people talk to David about God. What would we expect to see from Israel in verse 2? The Lord your God? We expect to see the Lord, our God. So David is writing Psalms. We know several of Psalms that are ascribed to David as he's fleeing for his life. And the Israelites probably have some of David's Psalms in writing songs. And they see that David could have killed Saul several times, and he doesn't. And he waits for God's timing. He also sees that David is king in Hebron for seven years. So David's king in the Hebron is the, a very southern city in Judah, which is in the southern part of Israel anyway. And so all of these other tribes are coming from the north. They're coming through Judah all the way to Hebron, where David has been king for seven years while he waits for Abner, uh, Saul's uh, military guy who has made Ishbosheth king. Ishbosheth is king for two years, and then Ishbosheth dies. And now all of Israel is starting to come to Hebron. And so after seven years of ruling at Hebron, after the death of Saul, is when these people come to make David king. And they want to make him king because they recognize God's word. The Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. And David is a known shepherd uh, from but he's shepherding sheep. Now he's going to shepherd people and shall be a prince over my people Israel. So he's going to be a king. So David's anointed and God's leaders make promises and uh, notice uh, in verse three. So all the elders of Israel come to the king at Hebron and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word uh, of the Lord by Samuel. By Samuel? Samuel has been dead for over a decade. But the people knew uh, the word of God through Samuel. Samuel told them. Um, and they knew that uh, David was supposed to be king. 
But they made this covenant. David makes this covenant. And notice the phrase in verse 3, before the Lord. And the word of the Lord. So God's leaders make promises in God's presence and according to his word. And we thought this morning, what in our culture do we make promises in the presence of the Lord and according to his word? I'll let you guys uh, think about that. Any ideas? Yeah, weddings are in the presence of God and according to the word of the Lord. Now, if you and I are invited to a same-sex wedding, you have to think through, are you going to go? Um, can unsaved people get married? Yes. And I've been asked to perform a wedding, and I usually, um, well, for unsaved people, not in our church, and I'll say two things. And I had someone before Christmas um, was offered, someone in our church offered to perform a wedding for a cousin or some relative. I said, here's my rule of thumb. Uh, you have to meet with me several times because it's more than just a wedding day. It's a life, and I want to share the gospel. And there's a lot about marriage that is Christ in his church, and the husband has to love Christ, has to love his wife like Christ loved the church. So that gives an opportunity to share the gospel in pre-marriage counseling. So I say pre-marriage counseling, and you can't live together before you're married. Why would I say that? Because it's according to the word of the Lord. It's according to God's word. And you're living in sin. I can't officiate a wedding when I know people have blatantly disobeyed or are disobeying God's word. So the one time I was offered to do a wedding last year, um, I told him those two stipulations. And guess what? I didn't get to do the wedding. Okay. And I don't know how it's working out with the person at our church that was offered um, to officiate a wedding. But in Massachusetts, I think anyone can officiate a wedding now. But um, so we ha would have a hard time. I would have a hard time going to a same-sex wedding because uh, people are going to make promises uh, in God's presence, but it's not going to be according to his word. So I, I don't know if I could be a part of that uh, is my thought process. But a wedding is an obvious way that we make present uh, promises in God's presence. And you'll hear me say and other pastors say, we stand here in God's presence uh, and before these witnesses. Um, and this is a holy time. And they make, uh, they're going to make vows and promises uh, according to God's word. And so weddings, uh, other contracts that we sign. If you can imagine signing a contract for a car or a house as a Christian, when we make a promise that we're going to make a payment for 30 years monthly, you better follow through with that because you know that God sees that this is your word. It used to be we'd just shake hands, but now he knows how much paperwork people have to sign for buying a house because people don't keep their word. Uh, it shouldn't be so for us as Christians, and uh, we should keep our word according to God's word. There are also some private things that we would make promises to God in God's presence and according to his word, like um, a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, or like certain oaths or commitments that you're going to make to God. God, I really don't want to go back to this lifestyle or this sin or this addiction or whatever, and you make a promise to God. Um, and it will be according to his word. So David is anointed 
with the leaders there and in God's presence and according to his word. That's what we see in chapter 11, verse uh, 2 and 3. David also moves from Hebron to Jerusalem, a little more central location for the kingdom. Instead of the southernmost part of Israel, he goes to the central part of Israel. And that is uh, not where Saul had his kingdom, uh, but that's where David's going to establish his kingdom. And we know uh, throughout the rest of the, the kings of the southern kingdom, they, their headquarters are in Jerusalem. Verse 4, and David and all Israel went up to Jerusalem, that is Jabesh. Jabus, uh, where the Jebusites were, and the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Jabus uh, said to David, you will not come in here. We'll find out how big his army was and why they said that, I'm not, I'm not sure, other than they just felt confident in their stronghold on top of uh, the hill where Jerusalem is now. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. Of his army and Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first. We know a lot about uh, Joab from our study in Second uh, Samuel. And he goes up first and he becomes chief. And David lived in the stronghold there. Therefore, it was called the city of David. And he built the city all around from Milo uh, in a complete circuit. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David and Joab are building the city. And the city was smaller as David takes over it. And he expands the city which is going to be the religious and the political headquarters of Israel. And David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. Um, so David moves and God's leaders become greater and greater uh, only if the Lord of hosts is with them. If the Lord of hosts is with you, now think about David mm -hmm. compared to Saul. David's probably not as tall as King Saul was. Saul is tall, dark. Saul was uh, tall, dark, and handsome. He had a lot going for him when he first became king. And he didn't commit the grievous sins that we would associate with David, uh, taking someone else's wife and killing that person. Um, but that was, um, say Saul was different than David, and he didn't repent. And David, when confronted, does repent. So God's leaders, um, look at verse 10. Now, they, these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all of Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So this is the second time that you'll see, and I've read ahead a little bit in First Chronicles, you'll see according to the word of the Lord often in this book. And these leaders come to make David king according to the word of the Lord. He makes a covenant with them according to the word of the Lord. And now... Um, they make him king in uh, in verse 10, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Israel knows what God's will is for them, is this man is our next king. And so um, David becomes greater and greater. Now, I said this morning with a slightly older crowd, <laughs> I said, when it comes to physical strength um, and sharp wits and uh, jumping higher and running faster, your best days are probably behind you. <laughs> I said, I got for someone in their 20s that was there. We have a few that are not quite 30 yet here, but most of us, even here, our best days <laughs> of greatness physically are behind us. So that's not what God's talking about here, getting 
greater and greater. What does the New Testament tell us about becoming greater? It says, though our outer man perishes, yet our inner man is renewed day by day. The focus in 2 Corinthians 4.16 is on the inner man becoming greater. And if we have followed the genealogies of those who weren't great and those who were great and Saul who wasn't great and David is becoming great, how is he becoming great? He's becoming great in faith. And he's opposite Saul for his breach of faith, Saul is destroyed, and David for his faith, and according to the word of the Lord, and in the presence of God, he's making promises. So becoming great is understanding that we can renew ourselves day by day, even if our outer man is not becoming greater, becoming less great. And what else does 2 Corinthians 3.18 tell us? How do we become great in, the, in our inner man? We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are being changed. If you read the Psalms that David wrote, it's pretty clear that he beheld the glory of the Lord. He was changed. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel because he knew God and walked very close to God many, many years. And he caused other people to trust God. He was a king that turned people, not like Saul, away from God. He's turning people to God as a king, which is what God wanted of the king of Israel. And so that's what Chronicles is highlighting here for us, is that David's living in God's presence. And despite physical decline, he's becoming greater and greater because the Lord of hosts is with him. And the Lord of hosts of heaven wants to be with us too. What does the New Testament say about God being with us? Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus says, uh, God says in the New Testament, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to be with you. I'll resist the proud, but I'll give you grace if you're humble. And so uh, we have much to learn from the New Testament about becoming great uh, if the Lord of hosts is with us too. We're not going to look at all of David's mighty men, uh, but you'll see their names again uh, from 2 Samuel 23. You'll see them here in chapter 11, verses 10 to uh, 47. And they um, they are incredible. They have incredible feats of strength. Their, their stories fascinate me. Uh, I read them again. I'm like, man, <laughs> these guys. Uh, going into a pit with a lion on a snowy day and killing 300 men at once and another at 800 men at once of the Philistines, uh, standing by themselves in a field, just standing for God. Uh, remarkable. And um, we get spiritual strength uh, from Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, when we understand that God gives us armor uh, to stand. And we're going to pray tonight as we watch and pray at the end of Ephesians 6, how to stand um, as God's uh, mighty people uh, today. The mighty men started joining David, and he has about 600 men when he goes to Ziklag. Ziklag is southern uh, Judah that is close to the Philistines, close to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And David thinks he's going to die from King Saul, and he goes and starts serving Achish, king of Gath. And uh, 1 Samuel 27 tells us that he was there a year and four months. So the last 16 months of Saul's reign, David is at Ziklag, 
And we have in chapter 12, uh, there are, let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now, these are the men who came to David at Ziklag while he, so he had 600 when he went to Ziklag, mighty men, some of chapter 11, those, those men are probably with him. But now we have more and more people are coming and joining David, and they have to be leaving Saul's army because Saul had 3,000 of the best soldiers to try to fight or to try to find David and kill him. Um, but as Saul gets his his uh, military is getting weaker, Philistines are getting stronger, and Saul's militaries, these guys um, will find out how <laughs> uh, mighty warriors are leaving Saul's army and they're going to join David. So in verse uh, one, uh, they joined David at Ziklag while he could not move freely about because of Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen who could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. So if their right or left arm gets wounded in battle, they can pick up the sling and keep slinging stones uh, left or right handed. They were Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen. We see from um the end of the book of Judges, that the Benjamites that were killed at the end of the book of Judges were also mighty warriors, and they also could sling stones as well. Talk about their names there. And then verse 8, from the Gadites, there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains, which came in handy as they had to get away from Saul and talks about them. Look at their look at the description of them in verse 14. These Gadites were officers of the army. The least was a match for a hundred men and the greatest for a thousand. So if you got a huge army against these few guys, you're like, eh, <laughs> we're pretty evenly matched here because of how much of uh, warriors these guys were. Um, and then it, it talks about more of of the men that are coming and joining David. And as he gains uh, military might, look at the analysis in verse 22. So they help David and verse uh, 22, from, for from day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army, like an army of God. Like an army of God, what does that mean? Well, an army of God uh, probably is a large army, but it's also probably a very loyal and unified army. If you are an angelic, the Lord of hosts was mentioned earlier. If you're fighting for God and your angels, you're completely loyal to whatever God wants you to do, you're doing it. That's how the army of God operates, completely loyal and unified. That's what we start seeing here. And if you think back through Saul's army and even David, there's a lot of disloyalty at the end of Saul's reign. We see disloyalty from Saul, um, thinking David is going to kill him, and David doesn't. And David goes to Achish, king of Gath, Philistine, and Achish thinks he's loyal to him, but David actually isn't loyal to Achish. And it's just a lot of tangled mess of disloyalty and distrust and and it sounds like here with the divided kingdom, the first seven years before David becomes king, there is Saul's army led by Abner, even though Saul's dead, and Ishbosheth the king, Saul's son. And then we got David, and more and more people are coming to him, and his army's getting bigger, and Saul's army's getting smaller. Um, and there's not really unity here. There is uh, disunion. It's almost like the civil war 
uh, in our country where there was such disunity in a, in, in a country and nation. But as David keeps getting more and more and more men, it says, there's a great army like an army of God. And for a time, when David and Solomon are ruling, um, Israel is at its best when it comes to military because they are unified. We'll see the unity here. Um, you'll, you can add up all the numbers that are mentioned. Um, I noticed that Judah's army is quite small compared to later on in the Kings, uh, where Judah and Israel are rough, roughly evenly matched with numbers. But here Judah only has 6,800. And then there are thousands from every tribe. Um, we get to the end of, of that. I added up all the numbers. We're not sure how many people are coming from Issachar. It just says 200 chiefs in the middle of this in verse 32. Um, and all of the kinsmen, so we don't know how many that is. So I'm guessing um, with that estimate, it's 330,000 plus the Issachar people troops. 330,000. Imagine Gillette Stadium filled. It's around 60,000. Five times. Five times of Gillette Stadium full of warriors um, armed, ready for battle. And it says that over and over again, that they are armed for war. They've got weapons of war. Uh, verse 38. All these men of war arrayed in battle order. So they're in, in lines. They are trained how to fight. They come to Hebron with a whole heart there's the unity, to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind, again, unity, to make David king. So they send their warriors, but the rest of Israel stays in the northern part and the, the western, eastern part of, of Israel, to, and they just send their warriors to come get David, make him king. But it's not immediate. Verse 39, they come for a celebration, and they were there with David for three days eating and drinking for their brothers had made preparation for them. So they said, Hey, when you go get David, don't just like kidnap him. Hey, we're here to take you. You're going to be our King. And we're going to, we're going to make you King. Um, go there expecting to celebrate making David King. And that's what they do. They eat and drink for their brothers had made preparation for them. And Chronicles also says in verse 40, also their relatives, as far as from Issachar, Zebulun and Naphtali, far North Israel came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen. So it is a huge gathering of people, hundreds of thousands of people, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raven, raisins and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Think back through First and Second Samuel. How many times was there joy in Israel? Not much. Think of when David kills Goliath, joy. When they first get their king, saw joy, but for the most part, there's not a lot of joy uh, in Israel. And why is there joy here? Joy in Israel is caused by unity, a mighty army, and ultimately the Lord gives joy. Why? Because they're following his plan. It was God's plan to have David king, and for seven years, Israel wasn't following that plan. They're following Abner, they're following Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is taken off the scene, and now Israel says, we got to get back to God's plan. And they come, uh, and all of Israel, even those coming, even those staying behind, they're all of one mind with a whole heart. They're all in this together, and they're like, okay, we should 
have you as our king. They come to celebrate and there is great rejoicing. What should we learn from in our lives? Uh, where does joy come from? What do we learn from these history lessons? When there's no joy, we're probably, when there was no joy in King Saul's life, it's because he wasn't obeying God. He wasn't, he said specifically about faith. He wasn't trusting God. We sing the song, Trust and Obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That song has <laughs> so many um, threads in the Bible that go back to that song. It really is about trusting and obeying. When Jesus comes on the scene, we're studying Matthew together. Those who recognize Jesus as Messiah, what do they do? They trust him and they obey what he says. That's the Great Commission. Trust God, he'll be with us, and obey what he says. And David, for the most part, is going to be a king who leads Israel to trust and obey God. And they start well. And now Israel's learning to trust God. And because of that, they're doing what God wants them to do and taking David and making him king. And because of that, there's joy in Israel. When we will take God's word and learn and see God's glory, what we can enjoy is what God gives us joy. Like whenever you and I know that we're doing exactly what God wants us to do, we're in the center of his will. We're not resisting him. We're not trying to go ahead of him. We're not trying to make excuses for our sin. Nothing that was true of Saul um, in his life. And Israel, as they followed Saul in this kind of leadership, now we're seeing a, a king who is going to lead the Israelites to trust and obey. Because of that, there's joy. We'll pick up here in uh, chapter 13 uh, next week, Lord willing.